And please turn in your Bibles now to 2 Thessalonians 2. Second Thessalonians 2 will be in verses 6 through 12 this evening. Last week we considered the identity of the man that we know as Antichrist and echoed Paul's teaching as our application that we should not be soon shaken in mind as though the day of Christ is at hand because history has yet to see Antichrist revealed. And we stopped kind of right in the middle of the context, right in the middle of the teaching, because verses 6 through 12, in these verses, Paul highlights some important elements of human nature at the end of the age that I would like us to look at together this evening. This message is going to be somewhat introspective. One of those things that I think is important for us is to gain perspective on what's going on around us from a spiritual standpoint. Uh, it was a couple of years ago that I preached through the epistle of John. And of course, uh, by that point, I'd been through uh, many years in church and, and Bible college and seminary. And yet, as I preached through John slowly and methodically, it impressed me as never before that difference, the, just belief and unbelief, light and darkness. And it, it really did change my perspective on the world as I looked at people and I, I looked at the spiritual battle as, as a battle between belief and unbelief exclusively, light and darkness. As you see that line of demarcation between those that believe and those that do not and how distinct, even uh, irregardless of religious uh, devotion, irregardless of church attendance, irregardless of, of any of those things, belief and unbelief. And this is going to be one of those type of messages, a message that, uh, Lord willing, gives us some perspective. Perhaps as you have learned in various contexts about the events of the end times, you've heard Bible teaching about Antichrist, about his policies, about the unified world governments and the mark of the beast, and you've wondered how can this all happen? Can people really be so blind? Can people really be so ignorant of evil be so confused, ignorant of history and everything going on around them that they would really allow this kind of a man to take power, that they would really allow this kind of a one-world system, uh, this kind of an ecumenical religion, this kind of an ecumenical um, um, system, this kind of a government, all of these things, how can such a thing happen? And that's what we're going to consider with our time this evening. The things that take place in the world that position the world for the events that we find taught in Scripture in the end times. Now, remember last time we ended by learning of the event at the midpoint of the tribulation where Antichrist reveals his true character and he sits in the holy place in Jerusalem exalting himself above God. We see that in verse 4 who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And then he says in verse 5, Remember ye not 
that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. He says, I didn't get a, tell you a whole lot while I was there, certainly not as much as I wanted, but I did tell you about him. Now, in verses 6 and 7, we read this, And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So we know that this man of sin is coming, that the son of perdition will be revealed, that these events are going to happen. We know that they aren't upon us yet because the signs of the times have not yet come to pass. But God tells us through Paul that there is something deeper happening as well, something deeper than just um, evil hasn't surfaced yet. There's more to it than that. And that's what he's speaking about in these two verses. He says, uh, what with holdeth that he might be revealed. Then he goes on to say in verse 7, only he who now letteth will let. There is something restraining the wickedness in this world from being fully realized. In verse 7, we see the word withhold. And in verse, excuse me, verse 6, we see the word withhold. In verse 7, we see the word let or letteth. And they are both the same Greek word, kat echo, which literally means to hold back or to restrain. Now, that, that word let there, um, we don't use it in this way anymore. We think of the word let as kind of allow. Um, Mom and dad let me ride my bike today. And it's that idea of allowing. But in, in the old English uh, idea, that, that idea was around, but there's also the idea of, of to withhold or to restrain. And so the idea of to let is to hinder something. And so withholding obviously would be to hinder. Letting would obviously be to, to hinder, to hold back. And so Paul is saying here that there's something withholding. There's something restraining. And God says that the mystery of iniquity, the spirit of Antichrist, this desire in the heart of man to exalt himself against God, to oppose God and all that is called God, to utterly rebel against his maker, this spirit is already well at work in the world around us. Now, we learned this last time as well. Of those of you that are on Tuesday night, we learned this from 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, which said, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. And as we talked about this, we make mention of the fact that there is the Antichrist and then there is the spirit of Antichrist. And while the Antichrist has not yet been revealed, the spirit of Antichrist, John says there are many Antichrists, that the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well and constantly working in this world. Many, many wicked men have come and gone during the past 2,000 years of world history. And these years since uh, the church began bear strong record of the working of the mystery of iniquity in this world. The spirit of rebellion against God has been ever-present. It's ebbed and it's flowed along societal and cultural lines. There have been times of revival where the spirit of Antichrist was greatly um, held down. There have been times of liberalism where the spirit of Antichrist uh, has flourished. But the spirit of Antichrist has always been around. 
And this is to be expected because the scriptures tell us that the mystery of iniquity is already working. And indeed, the scriptures tell us quite plainly that we are in the last times. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see the full revelation of the evil of Antichrist is being withheld. And according to verse 7, something specific is doing the restraining. And so the question becomes, what is this thing that is restraining the mystery of iniquity, that is restraining the spirit of Antichrist? Why is it that sin and iniquity and wickedness and evil cannot just flourish and reign and take over? Why is it that that men's attempts to unify the Western world under one government have always failed. Do you know that, that it's happened? The attempts have happened before? That, that Constantine tried it with the Holy Roman Empire. That the Pope, many popes tried it during the medieval time. That Napoleon tried it. That well before any of them, Alexander the Great tried it. That men for centuries have been trying. Hitler was trying it. For centuries, men have been compelled by, the, by this mystery of iniquity to try to unify the world under a human king. And it's never worked. Why? Why hasn't it worked? Why has it been thwarted? Well, there are many historical views on the topic all of which are slightly complicated by the way the Paul, that Paul wrote this sentence back in the Greek or, or this idea back in the Greek. In the Greek, the word withholdeth there, I told you it's the same word, kat echo, but the word withholdeth is in the neuter uh, tense for those of you that are here on Tuesday nights. Um, and then letteth there, the same word kat echo, but it's in the masculine, excuse me, not tense, gender. The neuter gender it withholdeth, and then letteth is in the masculine gender. And so scholars wonder, well, what could be described both in a neuter gender and in a masculine gender in the scriptures? How, wh- wh- why would it be that, that Paul would switch genders as he's speaking of this withholding force? He would switch from the neuter gender to the masculine gender. Well, some have thought the restrainer to be Satan himself, that he is simply biding his time, waiting for the right moment, waiting for God to give him the the go-ahead or whatever the case may be. This makes little sense since uh, the idea of Satan being a restrainer of iniquity and sin is foreign to Scripture. In fact, Satan is the uh, father of lies. He's the uh, Pulsion behind all sin, and it would seem uh, very unlikely that he would be restraining or, or, or serve in some sort of restraining capacity against sin. Some have thought the restrainer to be human governments, and this is a theory that, particularly when the Roman Empire was still around, in the early writers, the early writers truly felt as though the Roman government was the restraining force against the power of the, the Catholic Church, who many um, believed to be Antichrist. And so they thought that, that the Roman government was actually the restraining force against this false church that was rising up. And yet that doesn't really make sense either because the Roman government has come and gone. And in fact, many, even if we said, well, Western world governments, which are still around, uh, even if we, we use that interpretation, um, Western world governments have oftentimes been favorable to the spirit of Antichrist, have they not? Uh, as a matter of fact, as we look at our world today, 
um, there is no Western world government that is, that is uh, anything but favorable to the spirit of Antichrist. You might be able to look at, um, say, the Russian government, which is not a part of the Western world, and you can see that they are, in fact, rebuking the United States for their stance on sodomy, which is, which is embarrassing, to say the least, that a corrupt, wicked government, pagan government like uh, the Russian government is rebuking the United States for um, their liberal, wicked policies. But um, that aside, we, we don't really see a, a government that would actually serve, actually fun function to restrain the spirit of Antichrist in every age. So I contend, and I'm uh, standing on very solid ground here with many Bible expositors, that the restraining force against this mystery of iniquity that is at work is in fact the Holy Spirit manifest through the church. The Holy Spirit working or manifest through the church. And this contention is both reasonable and biblically consistent on many levels. First, this means that the restraint of evil is a direct work of God through the Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we see this in verse 13 as well. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Paul says that we are in a fight, but the fight is not a physical fight. The fight is not against physical and visible enemies. The fight is a spiritual fight against spiritual enemies. Do you want to know why prayer is so important? Why it's so important that you pray for your parents, that you pray for your children, that you pray for your pastor, that you pray for your church, that you pray for the Lord to do spiritual things, for the Lord to, to work on people's hearts in a spiritual way, that you pray for salvation, that you pray for sanctification, that you pray for revival, that you pray for our government, that you pray for our, our cities, that you pray for our, our states because we're in a spiritual battle. And while you've got figureheads at the front of those spiritual battles, people that are saying wicked things and doing wicked things and thinking wicked things, at the end of the day, there is a spiritual battle going on and spiritual battles are fought on a spiritual plane. Spiritual battles aren't fought on a earthly plane. They're fought in a spiritual plane. Now, they have earthly results. But the battle's not fought here. The battle's fought spiritually. With these weapons of warfare, the weapons that are spoken of in the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, salvation and righteousness and truth and faith and the gospel and the sword of the Spirit and prayer, with these weapons, these weapons are not carnal, but the Scriptures say, as I echo the words of 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We are to wage a battle against evil. And that evil is not intrinsically men, but the spiritual forces that compel philosophies and ideologies that men buy into. These men are, are buying into the spirit of Antichrist, but it's the spirit of Antichrist that we are battling. So the believer wields the truth of God through the power of the spirit of God in this world. Now, remember a few minutes ago for you uh, Greek aficionados, I told you that withholdeth is a neuter um, verb. Uh, its, its gender is neuter and letteth is masculine. 
And in fact, as we go throughout the Scriptures, we find that the Holy Spirit of God is spoken of both in the neuter and in the masculine. So again, it's consistent for us to see the Holy Spirit as being this restraining force, not just from a logical, reasonable, doctrinal perspective, but also from a linguistic Greek perspective. It would not be inconsistent to believe that the Holy Spirit has been given this responsibility through Christ's church of holding back the mystery of iniquity. That every time a wicked man or a wicked woman or a wicked government seeks to throw um, the world into a new age of spiritual darkness and deceit, true believers of the living God are revived. They are spiritually compelled to resist those wicked ideologies. And this is not at all inconsistent with what we've seen through history. The implications of the Holy Spirit being this restraining force are many. First, as we already mentioned, the thought is somewhat natural that it would be the Spirit of God which is tasked with restraining the spirit of evil in this world. If it's the spirit of Antichrist that is seeking to encroach the mystery of iniquity that is working, it makes sense that it would be the Spirit of God that is resisting. And the Spirit of God in this age has been given to an elect few to reflect. Right? And that elect few is the church. The church is responsible to bear the fruit of the Spirit of God in this world. And as we bear the fruit of the Spirit of God in this world, others see that fruit and they recognize the truth. We are the reflectors of the truth of the Word of God to this world around us only Excuse me, as we live and walk in the Spirit of God. And just as the Spirit of evil will use human governments and leaders to usher in its rebellion, the Spirit of God is currently using the human instrument of His church to restrain these policies. Now, second, this understanding would lend itself very naturally to the belief that we take in this church doctrinally that the church will be removed prior to the seven years of tribulation called the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Now, admittedly, these two doctrines support one another closely enough that to give up one would weaken the other one significantly. If the Bible were indeed 100% clear about the pre-tribulational rapture, then it would lend greater validity to the interpretation that the Holy Spirit through the church is the restrainer. Likewise, if the Bible were 100% clear about the Holy Spirit through the church being the restrainer, it would lend greater validity to the pre-tribulational rapture. Now, you can't say with, we can't say, I can't say, with 100% certainty that the pre-tribulational rapture is 100% the way it is because there's enough ambiguity in Scripture. There's enough inconsistency in every theory that is out there to say this one is the one that, that... interpretively fits the best, but God nowhere comes out and says it. It's the same with the idea of the Holy Spirit being the restrainer. There is plenty of interpretive reason why that makes the most sense. That is the clearest literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible. But there's enough ambiguity there to say it could be indeed something else because God doesn't just come out and tell us. But when you put them together, the neat thing about them is they fit, just like a puzzle. 
the idea of the Holy Spirit being the restrainer makes doctrinal sense, makes linguistic sense. The idea of the, the pre-tribulational rapture makes doctrinal sense, makes interpretive sense. And when you fit them together, they fit just perfect. We see the body of scriptural evidence when interpreted literally, grammatically, historically, and contextually, strong suggestion that the church will be removed from the earth prior to the seven years of tribulation. Now, I've taught that several times before, the pre-tribulation rapture. We stand on it here. We believe it. Um, I'm not going to get back into it tonight. We also see that the body of scriptural evidence, when interpreted literally, grammatically, historically, and contextually, strongly suggests the primary means of restraining evil in this world is the Holy Spirit of God. So there is great consistency in interpretation here for us to believe these two things together. And in doing so, they support one another and they in fact lend greater strength one to another and lend us to that conclusion that the restrainer in this passage speaks in fact of the Holy Spirit working specifically through the church. And that means, as we have mentioned, that this man of sin, this son of perdition, the Antichrist, indeed cannot be revealed and will not be revealed until that restraining force of the Holy Spirit through the church is taken out of the way. And this makes tremendous logical sense, doctrinal sense, interpretive sense, does it not? Does it not make sense that the removal of all Holy Spirit indwelled believers on this earth would afford evil the tremendous opportunity that it needs to influence the world? When you think about how could this happen, one of the reasons why it's so hard to think about how could this happen is because there's always some believers that stand up in the day of evil and say this is wrong. There's always someone shining the light into the darkness and appealing to the conscience of people saying this should not be happening. How often have followers of Jesus Christ been the only thing standing between governments or culture or society and absolute apostasy? How often has the vocal call of the church towards society and culture been the thing that has stayed society and culture from going over the edge? How many times has the wisdom of God manifest through those who believe on Christ been the single thread holding culture from absolute debauchery? Now imagine if every Holy Spirit-indwelled person on the face of the earth was suddenly removed out of the way. I mean, this is the kind of thing that evil men dream about at night. They wake up in the morning and they say, wow, I had a great dream. Those Christians were gone. All of a sudden, everyone with a biblical conscience, everyone with moral conviction, everyone who lives based upon a transcendent set of moral standards found in the Bible is suddenly no longer a factor. Poof. Gone. It would certainly save them the trouble of having to round us all up and put us into camps, right? It would sure save them the trouble of trying to marginalize our beliefs to such a degree that we just become some hateful fringe of society. They've tried to round up Christians before. It hasn't worked. They've burned them at the stake. They've buried them alive. They've dipped them in hot oil. They've done everything they can to stop the message and that hasn't worked. They've tried to marginalize the message before. They've tried to 
hide it underneath a clout of religion. That's what the dark ages were all about. But you know what? It didn't work. It's never worked. And so why would it work in the final falling away? How all of the sudden could God's church be so marginalized or so deeply persecuted that truth could no longer eke into society? Well, maybe it doesn't have to happen. Maybe God's just going to take His church away. And then there will be no more Holy Spirit indwelled resistance to the apostasy at hand. So we believe, in fact, that there is coming a day when God will, by sovereign decree, call His believers out of this world and this rapture of His church will be the final link in the chain of events that lead to the absolute falling away of society and of culture and the revelation of the man of sin. Now, one last thing before we move on. It's important to mention what I'm not saying here. When I talk about the Holy Spirit being uh, the restraining power of the Holy Spirit being removed from the world at the rapture, I am not under any circumstances saying, nor would it be biblically consistent for us to teach, that the Holy Spirit is completely removed from the earth after the rapture. As if God completely removed the Spirit so that the man of sin can be revealed. The Scriptures teach many ministries of the Holy Spirit. His ministry of conviction of sin, of restraining evil, of teaching and applying God's Word to the hearts of those who are indwelled, of bearing the fruit, of sealing men until the day of redemption. Many, many functions of, that the Holy Spirit plays in this world. And in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 7, we see several instances of men and of women in the time of the tribulation being sealed on their foreheads with the seal of God. There's nothing to make us think that spiritually or otherwise, this sealing is anything other than the sealing of the Holy Spirit because that's how the sealing is spoken of all throughout Scripture. All throughout the New Testament, the sealing is the idea of the Holy Spirit being that seal. Now, whether men and women are indwelled by the Holy Spirit in the manner that we see in the New Testament church, the Scriptures do not speak to that. We know that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world changed dramatically on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indwelled believers in a way that the Holy Spirit had never functioned before. And it would not be too inconsistent, I don't believe, for us um, to think that the Holy Spirit of God reverted back to maybe a, a, a ministry similar to the Old Testament during those last seven years of tribulation. Uh, why, Pastor? Why would that not be inconsistent? Well, because we've taught about various reasons for the tribulation, right? And there are two primary reasons for the tribulation. The first reason is to pour out the wrath of God against the unbelieving world. But the second reason, and we might say even more primary reason, is to chasten Israel back to himself. And if you go to Daniel chapter 9, we went there last week, and you look at that 70 weeks, the, the 70 weeks of Israel, as God gives this timetable, He gives that 70th week, and the 70th week is the tribulation week, and the 69th week was that um, time leading up to Messiah being cut off. And so the 70 weeks has everything to do with Israel and nothing to do with the church. And so would it not be consistent for the Holy Spirit to revert back to the ministry that He had before the church? 
to the ministry of the first 69 weeks? Would it not be consistent for him to have the same ministry in the 70th week that he had in the first 69 weeks? And then, of course, previous to that. Would it not be consistent to see the Holy Spirit operating in the same way in the 70th week of Daniel that he operated in weeks 1 through 69? And so, again, this is not a, a, a doctrinal stretch here for us to believe that the Holy Spirit will be around. Obviously, the two witnesses will be witnessing and we know that they will have to be compelled by the Spirit of God. There will be the 144,000 Jews that will be sealed and that will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Obviously, they have to have some power through the Spirit of God. But it, 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 it makes sense. Doctrinally, logically, theologically, for us to see the Holy Spirit's role change because the church has been removed. Now, we cannot know fully one way or another, but we should not assume that the Holy Spirit is not working in these years. Rather, that this particular role, the restraining of evil in this world, has been removed. Now, in verses 8 and 9, we see that it is within this spiritual climate and societal context that this man of sin, this son of perdition, and then in verse 8, the one called that wicked, will be revealed. He will make himself known and there will be no one with enough spiritual discernment to throw up a red flag, to oppose his rule, to spiritually question his motives, direction, but Paul gives this summary within the context of Antichrist's sure destruction. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. He will make himself known, no one to oppose his rule. Jesus will come and will shine the light of His truth into the darkness of Antichrist's rebellion. The word spirit there in the Greek says that He will come and He shall be, uh, and the Lord shall consume Him, excuse me, with the spirit of His mouth and the brightness of His coming. The word spirit there in the Greek, the word spirit pretty much everywhere in the Greek and even in the Hebrew literally means wind or breath. And so it might be more uh, appropriate here to say that he will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. The idea of the spoken word. That Jesus Christ will speak as the word of God incarnate and he will destroy Antichrist. But between the removal of the spirit, uh, the restraining aspect of the Holy Spirit through the church and the destruction of the man of sin, we know is seven years. This man will operate in the ideal spiritual climate for his wicked mission and his deep rebellion to overthrow God's kingdom to be realized. And for the rest of our time together today, we are going to consider the people that are still here on this earth in this time. After the restraining force of the Holy Spirit through the church has been removed, but before the man of sin is destroyed, when Jesus Christ returns seven years later, those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and therefore have not been raptured out of the earth will face the wrath of God in this time. And as we consider this reality, again, this question becomes, how can this possibly happen? Even among unbelievers, 
how would the disappearance of so many not tell the world exactly what is going on? How would it not validate the Bible in such a way that it could not be refuted? Even among unbelievers, how could a man of such deceit take over the minds of so many? Well, in various rapture sermons of the past, I've given some theories, possible answers to these questions as to how the rapture might come about, as to why it's not an unreasonable thing to think that, that Christians could be removed from this world and the earth not be overly taxed by that. First possibility is the tremendous human capacity for self-deception. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and the Pharisees hardly bat an eye. God speaks to the nation of Israel out of a cloud of thunder. They hear His voice and no better than a month later, they're dancing around a golden calf. Mankind has an uncanny ability to disregard the obvious if the obvious is not within its realm, his realm of, of desire. Our capacity for unbelief is staggering. And the rapture could be no different. The other ideas here, our thoughts on this issue tend to stem from the current circumstances in the Western world, do they not? a culture where many people still have some concept of the rapture and what the Bible says, even as unbelievers. We assume there's still a fairly large presence and influence of born-again believers in this world, but what about the great falling away that we read about last week? What about this great apostasy? What if by the time the rapture comes, the Bible has been deeply marginalized, or Christians are very few, or they're hiding somewhere, so far away from society that society wouldn't even know if they disappeared. So well hidden that the disappearance of these people wouldn't warrant even a front page in the newspaper. Or what if, as I gave that one theory sometime, again, please don't call me a heretic, what if, by chance, our bodies don't go with us? After all, they're not our resurrected bodies, right? What if our bodies don't go with us? And we would just receive our new bodies in the air and... The other bodies are lying around everywhere. And so it wasn't a mass disappearance. It was just a mass death. These are all possible explanations. Enough that the concept of a rapture should not cause us to doubt the validity of the pre-tribulational timeline. But with the rest of our time, let's take a step back even farther than that. We're just going to keep stepping back in our perspective, looking broader, looking broader, and consider the response of the world to this man named Antichrist and his system and how consistent it is with what culture and society have always done and the way the unbelieving world has always acted for them to just follow this wicked, wicked man. As verse 9 continues to describe Antichrist, it says, even him whose coming is after the work of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. This man will come with signs and lying wonders. He will be a man whose power stems directly from Satan and will therefore have the capacity to do things that a normal man under normal circumstances could not do. He will be a miracle worker, not just in the physical sense, but in the spiritual, supernatural sense. And verse 10 continues, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, 
that they might be saved. This man will be a master deceiver, painting himself as the ultimate leader. We talked in the last couple of weeks, he will be the pinnacle of the man of peace, right? We're talking Nobel Peace Prizes, we're talking time man of the year, we're talking that the, the, the person that the world is looking for. The person that the world is looking for to unite and to bring peace and to get rid of the guns and to get rid of the wars and to get rid of the conflict and to, to make people feel all happy inside and to say that there's no division between us and to unite all religions and to unite all cultures. That person, why can't religions just stop fighting? Why can't there be a man that just unifies them all? He's going to be the guy. Why can't people just stop warring? Why can't there be a person that brings peace? He's going to bring, be the guy. The, the world is going to love this guy. Love this guy. The world will completely buy into his deceit because they have rejected the truth of Scripture and salvation that has been impressed upon them by their conscience through the Holy Spirit. Pastor, why does the Scripture matter so much? That's what verse 10 says, right? This will be in them that receive not the love of the truth. Why does the Scripture matter so much? Psalm 119, verse 130. The entrance of thy word giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Literally, all wisdom and all discernment that exists in this world today is an extension of the biblical worldview. It's an extension of the truth of God's Word. Now, this does not mean that those who reject the Bible or reject God or reject Jesus Christ as Savior have no wisdom or no understanding of the truth. But what it does mean is that to whatever degree the unbeliever or the believer has wisdom and understanding of the truth, it does so because their mind has fallen in agreement with biblical values. Allow me to illustrate. The atheist can still believe in morality. But for an atheist to believe in a, in a, a transcendent morality, a true right and wrong, is for them to live in complete opposition to their very worldview. For them to believe in a complete right and wrong is for them to borrow the biblical worldview for their view of morality and then to throw the biblical worldview away for their view of everything else. In a world without a supreme being that is greater than man, morality, a transcendent morality, makes no sense. In this worldview, the only thing that makes sense is what is best for me, survival of the fittest, what works. Do what feels good, do what is good for you. If it's good for you, it's right. If it's not good for you, it's wrong. That's the only thing that makes sense in an atheistic worldview. I take what I want because it benefits me regardless of who I hurt because for me, survival and happiness is all that matters. There's no reason in an atheistic worldview for me to care about anyone else. So the atheist who has strong moral conviction is living in contradiction to his own worldview. And the wisdom which he does have concerning moral absolutes, the wisdom that says it is wrong to steal, it is wrong to kill, it is wrong to hurt others, the only place where that wisdom is drawn from is in fact the biblical worldview. The admission of a higher power who has ordained moral absolutes by which mankind operates. When unbelievers exercise charity, 
giving to others. They may refute God. They may say there is no God. They may say I'm doing this for other reasons. But charity is borrowed from a biblical worldview. That it is more blessed to give than to receive. When unbelievers exercise true justice, when they want true justice and equity to be done, they are doing so because they are borrowing from God, from a biblical worldview of choices and consequences. Every aspect of earthly wisdom that an unbeliever reflects is little more than an extension of the degree to which their thinking conforms itself to this book whether they see that or whether they don't. And that is because the entrance of the word of God into the mind of man, whether they know it or not, gives light, brings wisdom, brings perspective on reality. Where there is true perspective on reality, there is some light of the word of God. The farther a person goes from reality and perspective on reality, what you can know is that they are living farther out from an understanding of a biblical worldview, from an understanding of the Word of God. Even the man who has rejected Jesus as Messiah can exercise great wisdom if he operates in the light of God's Word, in the light of God's design. But we speak in Second we speak in Second Thessalonians of a time after a great falling away, an utter rejection of the biblical worldview and of biblical thinking, a time so devoid of truth where there will literally be no understanding anymore of right and wrong. This society will have rejected the light so vehemently and thus be walking in such deep darkness that there will be no discernment, no wisdom. And this man will be so compelling in his words and actions that the world will follow after him, hook, line, and sinker. In our Sunday morning services of late, we've learned about God's interaction with man. And several weeks ago, and even this morning, to some degree, we spoke about God's permissive will. The concept of God's permissive will, that God allows mankind to reject his perfect will, but also brings about in those men the consequences of doing so. And in verse 11, we read this, For this cause God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That word delusion literally meaning a wandering or a straying or an error. The world will have fallen into deep apostasy. They will have rejected the truth of God's word, the only source of wisdom and light. And then God will confirm them in their rejection, bringing about in them the consequences of their own decision, allowing them to fall into the deepest of deep error, believing the lies of Antichrist. He will lie about God and God's design. He will lie about his own intentions. He will lie about the way the world works. He will lie about everything and the world will love him for it. That's not too hard to believe, is it? We have politicians that get behind a camera every week and blatantly lie, get caught in their lies, and the world cheers and applauses and gives them prizes and tells, the, tells everybody how good these people are and how wonderful they are as leaders. And the world rejoices as these leaders get up, look people straight in the eye, and lie to them. The world will finally find the pinnacle of the deceit, the deceiver, 
finally find their Messiah, a man who opposes God in every way possible, confirms them in their rebellion, makes them feel good about their rebellion against God, unites the world in opposition against everything that God has designed. The kind of rejection we're talking about will be total. The kind of rejection found in 1 Timothy 4 verse 3, that literally marriage will be opposed because marriage is an institution of God. Eating of meat will be opposed because eating of meat was something that God allowed Noah to do after the flood. It's on the authority of God to eat meat. The kind of rejection found in Romans chapter 1, verses 23 through 29, where men are free to worship anything as long as that something is not the Creator God, where sodomy becomes not just normal but expected, where lawlessness abounds through the absolute rejection of morals. <coughs> and the unbelieving world will love it because every vestige of light will have been removed from before their eyes. They will love the darkness. They will bask in the darkness. They will swim in the darkness. They will rejoice in the darkness of rebellion. There will be no more believers to make them feel guilty about their sin. No more Bible to remind them of their accountability to God. There's only this man, this world leader, and this false church this false church that makes everybody feel so good about their religion, but that has absolutely no concept of the true and living God. The man who brought peace, the man who teaches that they have no accountability to a God in heaven, or at least not the God of the Bible, that they should cast off any and every element of his design. And this is the direction the world is heading. This is what the world is going toward the end goal of Antichrist power and authority. And so God confirms them in their sin. And He confirms them in their damnation as well. Verse 12, that they all might be damned, where it literally means tried, condemned, judged, who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The last verse in Romans chapter 1 tells us about those who not only do such wickedness, but take pleasure in them that do it. They will enjoy the pleasure of the flesh for a season, but their enjoyment will be cut short and their damnation will be eternal. Remember where this epistle began, 2 Thessalonians, with Paul teaching the church about the wrath of God which is poured out upon the persecutors of the righteous in Christ. Rejection of God, deception from this world, damnation in the world to come. This is the end of every man that knows not God. As we close today, I'd like us to turn our minds toward three applications of this text. Applications that remind us that the world is already in a state where this kind of mass apostasy and deception could very easily take place. The world is ready for this, folks. And as we apply these points, it behooves us to see those areas of society and culture that are busy preparing us, preparing mankind for this apostasy. And our first point is this, that the world is primed for signs and wonders. I don't know if you've seen it this way, but let me try to help you gain a little perspective on what's going on in the world around you. The 19th and 20th centuries were dominated by the worldview of 
modernism. It was a worldview which highlighted the philosophy of materialism, a rejection of anything immaterial, a rejection of anything spiritual. If you can't see it, if you can't feel it, if you can't hear it, if you can't touch it, then it is invalid. This mindset was compelled by material thought in every way. But we don't live in the 20th century any longer, and we don't live in a modernistic society anymore. We find ourselves in the 21st century, and in this century we are in what's called post-modernism. We are in post-modernism. Post-modernism has seen a tremendous resurgence of a belief in the immaterial and a belief in the spiritual. Mind you, not a resurgence of biblical spirituality, but a resurgence of spirituality. The world is deeply spiritual. Postmodern thought is deeply spiritual. You talk to the, the tweens and teens and early 20s folks today, they are deeply spiritual, but don't you try to get them into a church. They are deeply spiritual, but don't you try to talk to them about the Bible. The concept of karma is a big deal today. That if you put out negativity, you'll receive negativity in return. That if you put out positivity, you'll receive positivity in return. It's not in the Bible, but it's without question spiritual. And it's very, very popular today. A resurgence of interest in the supernatural through things such as witchcraft and magic have also become prevalent. Books and movies have highlighted this. The Harry Potter series has highlighted this as it teaches witchcraft. Superhero movies have highlighted this, have they not? As they teach superhumans. Coupled with the tremendous ability of special effects today, it's brought a spiritual, uh, the spiritual and the immaterial closer than, than it's been in a long time. Even things such as Lord of the Rings and Star Wars have, have brought this to the forefront. And in a society that has seen the supernatural and the immaterial so realistically depicted in media, it's so realistic now to see these things in interacting with real people to see superpowers and witchcraft and all of these things uh, taking the forefront. It's so realistic. It won't be hard for the human mind to transition to it coming back in real life. For, for someone to actually do these things. And when a man appears on the scene who can do wonders and signs and miracles, would it be any shock that the world would see him as something greater? A superhuman? Rather than fear him? as a fulfillment of biblical warning. Now, I'm not inherently preaching against any spiritual or supernatural depiction in a movie. I'm not telling you to throw away all your superhero movies or to throw away Star Wars. Now, I would definitely caution you against Harry Potter. But I'm not cautioning you against all the spiritual realm and that, or the supernatural realm that's depicted in movies today. There are lines that should definitely be drawn to protect our imaginations from wandering into areas of the supernatural that are real and that are demonic. But believers have been given the blessing of discernment, the power of the Holy Spirit, and have the privilege in this life of using the world without abusing the world. The, the, the believer has a capacity that the unbelieving world doesn't have to see these things without being affected uh, in, in, in the sense of being deceived by these things. But even to the degree that you allow yourself and your children to enjoy the imaginings of the supernatural, don't be fooled into thinking that these, this entertainment is just for fun. Don't be fooled into thinking that there's not a preparation going on behind the scenes here. 
We can use the world without abusing it, but don't think that the world is doing something okay here. <laughs> the entertainment that is going on today is a societal conditioning to accept a world leader who is deeply spiritual and deeply religious, worshiping Satan himself, and who through his spiritual connection to the demonic realm is able to do great miracles and wonders. Every generation has been conditioned for this. The Greeks and the Romans had mythology. The Middle Ages had fairies and wizards. The alien phenomenon of the modernistic age. During modernism, you had to see it. It had to be connected to science. Aliens. The aliens were, were the, the connection to the spiritual and the modernistic age. Now we're getting into the postmodernistic idea. Boy, it's everywhere. Throughout time, the supernatural, the demonic, has always been before the face of society, keeping them in a state of readiness for some leader to be compelled by a supernatural evil. The world is primed for signs and wonders, folks. And when Antichrist comes, he will be welcomed as a miracle, as the very epitome of human progress, because this is what the world has been prepared to accept. Now, thank God that if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, by placing your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you can see through the veil. You can see what's going on behind the curtain. You have the discernment and the wisdom of God. Don't let that go. Don't let that go. And if something on the big screen or on the television set or on the internet takes it too far, be willing to step away. Now, if you feel no conviction of the Holy Spirit, if it's not taken too far, okay. But when it goes too far, may I urge you to back off. Because the world is being primed for signs and wonders and the entertainment world, media, internet and television in particular, is the medium. Second, the world is primed not just for signs and wonders, but also for alternatives to the truth. The truth brings light. And the testimony of John 3.19 is that men are condemned because light is coming to the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But in the Western world today, light is nearly unavoidable, really. Light is built into the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights. It's there. That's why so many people are hating the Constitution and the Bill of Rights today. Light is built into the laws that are in society. Light is built into the family structure. Light is built into church culture. But every time light is removed from society, have you noticed how much society rejoices with every little speck of light that's being removed? Sodomites allowed to marry, society rejoices. Men have operations to look like women, society rejoices. Prayer removed from the public sphere, society rejoices. Truth given way to subjective morality, society rejoices. It's not that people don't want structure or definition. They just don't want any structure or definition that reminds them of their obligation to a holy God. This is a philosophy called humanism. And it is, too, a very strong element of a postmodernistic worldview that dominates society and culture. And society is being primed for a spirit of anarchy. Not against the leadership of men, but against the knowledge of God. Society is being primed. Men want a reality, but they want that reality to be founded upon the ideas of humanity, not the ideas of divinity. 
And this is why the number of the name of Antichrist, according to Revelation 13, 17, is the number of man. People will often say 666 is the number of the devil. No, it's not. Six is not the number of the devil. It's the number of man. It's the number of man exalting himself to God. It's the number of man doing what Satan did thousands of years ago, which is exalt himself above God and say, I will be God. I will be exalted to the heavens. I will take this throne. If I have to, I'm going to take it by force. God, it's mine. The world is seeking to usurp the light and the authority of the word of God with a word of its own. Humanity is seeking to be God. Now, as we talk about books and movies kind of being the evangelists of signs and wonders in our culture, as we consider the societal evangelist of rejection of truth and of the exaltation of man, really music is the evangelist of that today. If you want to talk about the evangelist of the signs and the wonders, you could say the evangelist of that um, postmodernistic spiritual mindset. Yeah, a lot of that's found in the movies and the books. If you want to talk about the postmodernistic humanistic mindset of exalting man above God, sports and music are the venues. Now, I'm not saying don't watch sports or don't listen to music, but I'm saying know what's going on. Know what's going on when 75,000 people pack a stadium to watch a football game. Know that that is their church and there's no way to say that it's anything else. Know that when the majority of the world says football, soccer, is not a sport, it's a religion, they mean it. That those stadiums being built are not just stadiums, they are cathedrals to their God. Know that when you hear, be it pop or country or rap or hip-hop artists, and, and, and you hear them talk about the, their, their, in, in their music their exaltation of the human experience or, or even going beyond that with many of them. We've talked about several of the, these artists before. Listen to the, a few of their songs within the context of the exaltation of human truth and experience above divine truth, and you will find that these men and women are oftentimes, in fact, evangelists of humanism. The world is primed for signs and wonders. The world is primed for alternatives to the truth. Third and finally, the world is primed to blind their own hearts. They are ready to blind their own hearts. The text tells us that God will send to the world a strong delusion, strong enough that the world will in fact believe this lie. Romans 1 verses 26 and verses 28 tell us that the natural result of the rejection of God and His truth in this world is that God gives men over to vile affections and to a reprobate mind. Just read the news. Listen to a talk show or a politician or a celebrity and it will become apparent very quickly that the secular world is drowning in foolishness and in ignorance. This is not a statement of superiority as if we as Christians are somehow smarter than the majority of the world, but on the authority of God's word, we do have more wisdom than the majority of the world because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to whatever degree we don't fear the Lord, we do fear the Lord more than the unbeliever if we've accepted Christ by grace through faith. 
What will it take for the eyes of the world to be completely blinded to the truth? Little more than the final removal of light. The day the restraint of the Holy Spirit through the true church of Christ is removed from this world, the day that the final vestiges of light are removed from society and culture, the world will rejoice and God will be compelled to simply finish the job that they already started through their unbelief. Like the Pharaoh in Exodus who hardened his heart against God so many times that God then hardened his heart himself to fulfill all righteousness of God in him. Like the nation of Israel who hardened their heart against God so many times that after they hardened their heart against Messiah come in flesh, God finally allowed their eyes to be blinded and put scales over their eyes until the righteousness of God through the church is complete. The world is readying itself to fully reject God at which point God will give them over to this rejection, blind their eyes to the truth and fulfill all of his righteousness in them. And that righteousness will be fulfilled through wrath. Now the lesson for us this evening, if your pastor is correct in his interpretation, then you are the Holy Spirit indwelled member of God's restraining force in this world. Isn't that kind of an exciting thought? Isn't it kind of an exciting thought that you are a part of God's restraint of evil? That you are a part of that dam that is withholding the floodgates of the mystery of iniquity that is at work in this world? That when you're out there at Walmart, or when you're walking around town, or when you're talking to that insurance adjuster on the phone, you are being a part of the restraining force of evil in this world, that when you choose to spend or not spend money on that, go or not go to that place, that you are being a part of the restraining force of God against evil in this world. You are a satellite of the light of Christ in the darkness that is this world. But there's coming a day when your light will be removed and the world will be given over to the utter darkness that they're constantly craving. But until that day, there's still some time to shine the light. The darker the world is around you, the brighter your light will shine for Christ. The darker the environment you find yourself in, the brighter you are shining for Christ. The question is, are you letting that light shine? Is your devotion to the Word of God rooted in the truth of God? Is it founded on the absolutes of God's Word? Are you in the world but not of the world? Using the world but not abusing the world? Or have you assumed in your life some of the very darkness that the world around you adores? Are there pockets of darkness in your life that the world gravitates to? Yeah, he's kind of a spiritual guy, but, but he's just like me here and there and there and there. He's, he's got those pockets in him as well. The unbelieving world is ready for Antichrist, ready to love and serve and obey Him, ready to pour out their loyalty to Him, ready to cast off their perceived chains of God's divine expectations and assume a disposition of absolute rebellion, but there is a restraining force in this world. How could it happen, Pastor? How could things possibly get that bad? Well, when we're gone, it is going to get that bad because we're gone. But until that day, there is a restraining force in this world that brings man to see their sin, to feel guilt over their sin, 
that restrains men in their sin and that force is the Holy Spirit using you as one of his tools. We sang this morning, right at the end of our service, channels only. That as we are emptied, the Holy Spirit of God fills us and uses us for his purposes. We are his tool. The question as we close is this. How good of a tool are you for the Holy Spirit today?